Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief of Interfish, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Correspondent John Evans in Brazil. Hello, gentlemen. Uh, let's let's dive right in uh, with the biggest story of the week. We only have time for a couple um, but one definitely uh, was a bombshell. Um, John Fiorillo, I'm going to turn it over to you um, just to kick us off, and then we can start digging into the history a bit uh, of this story. But tell us, uh, tell us what happened this week, and let's talk about what it might mean. Yeah, um, this week there was a settlement, an $85 million settlement uh, against uh, uh, salmon farming companies that include Maui, Leroy, Salmar, Cermak, and Grieg. Um, and it stems from a case where in the U.S. there's there were allegations of collusion and price fixing. Um, and uh, it was a class action uh, lawsuit led by uh, Euclid uh, Seafood, I, I think is the full name, uh, Euclid Fish, maybe. Um, don't have it in front of me. But um, anyways, um, yeah, so they lost or they didn't lose. They settled the case for 85 million, did not admit uh, guilt or anything like that, but expressed the idea that, you know, this was going to save money in the long run because uh, the legal process in the U.S. is drawn out uh, and very costly. So, um, yeah, that's that's the essence of it. Now, the the broader questions are you know what comes next is this the tip of the iceberg because there's some who believe that it is that there is also a uh similar case uh, uh ongoing in the eu and that's been ongoing for several years and that's what triggered this one and the doj in the us is also uh opened a case uh along the same lines against roughly the same companies. So this could be more than it appears at the moment. Uh, and it's Euclid, Euclid Fish Company, sorry. Right, and, and Euclid is a small uh, Ohio-based uh, company. Um, we've been trying to get a hold of them and have not had any uh, luck. Maybe they're not um, interested in talking right now, but eh, we'll keep on that. We'll, we'll, we'll get to them eventually, or their attorneys. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's quite common in the U S that this is, uh, these class action suits. Uh, I think we've talked about them before on the podcast, but an attorney will identify a case maybe in another country or sort of sniff something out where there may be some money in a class action settlement could be in the offing. Uh, they'll file a suit and then, uh, actually oftentimes they'll, they'll go find a company to join the class action and lead the class action. Um, now, you know, I did you find it surprising, John, that there was a settlement here or just in reading the justification for that settlement, did, did that make sense to you? Oh, uh, I mean, I understand the justification. I don't like the continued precedent being set. And by that, I mean, Maui settled uh, in another class action lawsuit uh, I think it was last year, uh, 1.3 million. Now, this was not price fixing. This was misleading advertising for claiming 
that their products are uh, produced uh, sustainably. Uh, so they settled for that. Um, and I just think once you begin to do that, I think, as you mentioned before, there's a whole cadre of uh, these attorneys out there, these law firms that look for this uh, quick money, if you will. Um, and um, when they see people giving in and crying uncle and settling, I think that emboldens them more. I could be completely wrong on that, but I mean, that's generally what I've read and what I've seen in the past. So no, I don't like the idea of settling, but then again, I'm not running these companies. I don't know the financial exposure from year, more, years more of litigation and things like that. And, you know, litigation does not in any way guarantee that you're going to win the case. I mean, anybody will tell you once it goes to court, it's it's a 50-50. So yeah, that's that's just the way I see it. Right. I mean, you know, it, the the fact that the the EU sort of kicked this off with a raid of some offices there in Scotland, you know, that to me sort of sets an an interesting precedent in motion. Uh, you mentioned the Department of the U.S. Department of Justice, um, which has been more and more in recent years uh, aggressive on price fixing and aggressive on these issues, um, even under the. Uh, really under the Trump administration, there was it was quite active. And of course, the big win, the biggest win, uh, and certainly in my time here, and my, I would venture to say historically, the biggest, uh, the biggest price fixing case uh, was against the, um, the big three tuna companies. And they ended up uh, also settling, um, but not before executives ended up in jail. So as you say, maybe sometimes it's best to get out in front of these things and settle them. Um, but, uh, but, but we just don't know how far it's going to go. We don't know the timeline. The EU is always opaque about when these things will uh, happen because of the, the bureaucracy. So it could be years before we hear anything on, on the EU and, uh, and what their view is on this alleged collusion. The DOJ, similarly, they can look for years because the cases against the tuna companies stretch back a long time. Yeah, and I think it's interesting the point you bring up about executives serving jail time. Obviously, we know Chris Lashewski, um from Bumblebee is still in prison, uh, will be for a bit more um, related to that case. And... I just, you know, I start to wonder, okay, what if it was a Norwegian salmon company executive? Can, can they imprison that person if they're in Norway? You know, there's, there's just a, a, a lot of questions around this. And again, I'm not sure settling, even though you suggest that you weren't guilty or anything like that. I think most people, when they see settle, hmm. They they think there's some uh, some guilt associated, whether it's true or not. It just gives that perception. So, in the long run, I'm not sure they did themselves any favors. But then again, I'm not running these companies, so I don't really know inside and out. Well, before we freak out the Norwegian uh, salmon CEOs about going to 
prison. Um, I think it's important. <laughs> I think it's important, everyone. I think it's important, listeners, to contextualize uh, Mr. Fiorillo a bit. Um, and and it was, I mean, the documents uh, that were released uh, in that in the tuna price fixing case. I mean guns don't smoke any more than the smoking guns that were alleged in that case. Um, now they've all been denied all those, or at least uh, as you said, John, they've settled. There's been some admission of guilt and some, uh, some that have pled uh, absolutely not guilty, including Leshevsky, who you mentioned. Um, but uh, it, it's just important to, to, to let the, the listeners know that, there would need to be some serious smoking guns. Now, I'm who knows, or maybe I I have not seen any indication that that this uh, or heard any indication over the past few years of us covering this that there is anything along those lines. But um, of course, you never know. But I think that with the tuna case as well, what is different about that is it was uh, referencing a single market. Uh, and a um, nearly, you know, an, an absolutely almost identical product, you know, sitting next to one another in the shelves. So this will be harder. But then again, as you said, John, sometimes when you get in front of a jury or sometimes when the, the DOJ, I mean, you have to think about all the things that come across the Department of Justice's uh, transom. Um, and, and they're as, uh, they're as likely to, uh, make decisions that are, uh, you know, short-sighted as well, um, as any other government, um, they may just say, okay, we're going to, we're going to get this group on, on, uh, on collusion because we haven't had a good collusion case in a while. Um, these are, these are touted as victories, you know, when the U S department of justice, um, you know, makes these allegations and then wins, um, they, they are proud of that because I, I think they like to flex their muscle and send messages to the industry or to the, to the larger um, business community that, that these things are being watched. Now, there is no, uh, you know, there's been no charges filed by the Department of Justice, um, but the fact that there is a criminal investigation, um, you know, that, that says that they're being looked at closely and the outcome of that will be interesting because that will inform what the EU, uh, what the EU does. And, and there'll be, there'll be some, um, some sorts of coordination, I'm sure on how they do that investigation, but, um, yeah, let's, let's see. Well, you know, before before we close the door on this, I, this uh, salmon uh, collusion in general just kind of surprises me because, at least in my experience, I don't think there's any species where price transparency is is so uh, obvious. I mean, there's there's um, you know different agencies and groups who track this and publish this information all the time. I mean, we do a report every week. Um, so it's not like, you know, just because the market moves in, in, in one direction doesn't mean the prices are being fixed and it, it's, it's not impossible by any stretch of the imagination to know the salmon price, you know, from week to week or probably from even day to day. So this one always struck me as, is odd. So I don't know. Uh, we'll just have to see, I guess. 
that's a good point. I mean, the transparency is a really important part of how these uh, how these decisions are made. Um, again, I suppose that when you settle, you just look at the lawyer's fees and the time and the effort, et cetera. And, you know, $85 million, while it's a lot of money, is a drop in the bucket for those companies, particularly when you look at their first quarter earnings. I mean, that's that's nothing. That'll barely show up on their uh, on their quarterly earnings. Um, but, uh, but as you said, it, it, the transparency of the market, uh, is going to, I think, make it difficult for any sort of larger scale, uh, case to succeed if the Department of Justice or, uh, the European Commission decide to, um, to press any further on this, because as you said, there are, there is Fishpool NASDAQ, there is Norwegian uh, seafood export statistics. Uh, so many people track the price publicly. Uh, these are publicly listed companies, all of them. Um, and so uh, it's very, very easy to get information uh, on their earnings and uh, on their strategies and on how contracts work and on spot markets, uh, etc. cetera. So um, yeah, I think this is going to be a tough one to prove, but as you said, you know, the settlement is, we'll see in the future if that ended up being a good idea, but um, hopefully the salmon company uh, attorneys here in the United States have told them uh, that the U.S. is a litigious uh, country and when there's money to be had, there's a lot of attorneys that will line up and say, "Wait a minute, um, hey, they they just uh, they just settled for 85 million. That sounds like a great opportunity to get some legal fees if we find another way to file a suit uh, on this." And there's always little ways to twist and tweak and and find um, you know different ways to to file suits. So should be interesting. Yep. Well, okay, let's switch over. Uh, John Evans, um, you know, one of the, uh, also um, another legal case stretching back, oh, I would say at least 10 years, maybe 12 years, um, is a story of Spanish seafood giant Pescanova. Now, if you recall, uh, the implosion of Pescanova, one of the largest seafood companies in the world at the time, I believe it had well over a billion uh, euros in revenue. Uh, with its tentacles kind of stretched all around the world and a lot of different businesses, um, was a, the, the CEO was found uh, guilty of all kinds of uh, layers of mismanagement. Uh, the company uh, went bankrupt. Uh, it was stock listed. A lot of people lost their shirt. Uh, a lot of jobs were lost. And um, it was unclear that the company would ever be anything um, again in the future, um, but the company Nueva Pescanova, New Pescanova, was established. Um, and the idea was to um, just form, find whatever the husk was that was left and build up a viable company from there. And, and that also was under question of how the banks needed, how the banks were going to get their money, uh, how all this was going uh, to work out. But it does appear under the new CEO, uh, Ignacio Gonzalez, that um, things 
are moving a bit more uh, onto the the uh, right track. Their earnings just came out today and showed a um, some positive development, not just versus last year, but versus the pre-pandemic year of 2019. Um, but John, you've been tracking them closely, uh, and you sat down with Gonzalez uh, in Barcelona last month. So tell us a bit about his view and, and what he thinks about this kind of, uh, I guess you could say, new era. Yeah, as you mentioned, Drew, a rare interview indeed. And he says that the outlook for the uh, fishing, aquaculture and seafood processing giant is a financial future is bright following the takeover uh, by Spanish banker banker as you mentioned um, early uh, last year banker capitalized all the bankruptcy debt in the way of Escanova uh, after taking a 97% stake in the company uh, setting the stage for growth as as you mentioned uh, the financial results just out um, this week um, show that uh, its EBITDA doubled to 80 million euros and revenue was up uh, 21%. And also, as you mentioned, um, the revenues were up four. Good news indeed that the uh, the um, revenues were up um, four point, uh, so, well, it was over 4% um, compared with the um, pre-pandemic. And that was helped by um, retail, wholesale, and food service business uh, rebounding, and um, company particularly quoting markets such as um, Portugal, France, Greece, and the United States for that. Of course, the company's been busy launching um, new products as well, including its Pasta del Mar range, um, a blitz of new products, actually 57, I think I, I, I remember reading yesterday. Um, so a lot going on there at the moment, yeah. Now, I mean, it was quite interesting too. just looking back on the entire uh, saga, uh, which we spent a lot of ink following. Um, I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. The The CEO, then CEO Manuel Fernandez de Souza, uh, he ended up being sentenced to eight years in prison, um, had all kinds of, of money kind of squirreled away here and there. Um, and, uh, and the allegations with the, was, was, were that the, the debt that had been hidden was uh, 3.6 billion euros as part of the collapse, uh, which is just kind of stunning. So, um, yeah, uh, we're, we're talking about not a, not a small um, hole that the company has had to dig itself, uh, dig itself out of. Um, now, uh, in, in terms of Gonzalez, I mean, we talked to him sort of about his um, about the, the company's plans and, and how things are going forward and what sort of <laughs> underpins the future. So um, what were his thoughts on uh, kind of where he takes the, the company now and, and kind of the focus areas? It's still a very diverse company. Um, but it does seem like that he's got a, a strategy for growth that um, has some particular elements to it. Yeah, I mean, one uh, particular uh, element, which I won't speak about too much because I'm going to put it, we're going to put a piece out on it next week, is uh, focusing on the company's um, aquaculture um, strategy, which is uh, two, uh, made up of two parts, um, a two-pronged two strategy, if you like. Um, that's very interesting, based around technology and um, and um, the hunt for new uh, new new kinds of seafood. Uh, one of which um, we've first seen developments on recently with the um, 
as, as the company moves forward, um, trying to uh, commercialise uh, octopus, um, which is growing in uh, certain markets of the world. Um, so that's one area. That's, that's one area of it. Um, and they've been very sort of. Um, what's the word? They've been very um, quick to put their case forward in terms of defending that from environmental groups who've been, uh, you know, made various allegations against uh, octopus farm farming, and they, and they say that, you know, that doesn't um, coincide with the, the science. You know, they say that accusations made by criti critics are not founded in science, and that they're discovering many new things because they're pioneers. Um, but you know that will be what remains to be seen because they haven't said which markets they're going to target at this moment. What they have said that there's, they're aiming to start production um, next year in the Canary Islands. Yeah, I found that pretty fascinating. I mean, I think it's um, there's so many different species that are uh, that there's been um, research and advances on in farming um, that they're always in the background and you kind of never know when they're going to complete the life cycle uh, or the farming cycle for it. Um, but, uh, you know, until your interview, I hadn't realized they were quite yeah, so the, far along. Yeah. As you said, Drew, they're in the, now in the fifth generation. So they have completed the, uh, the cycle. Um, and uh, now it's a matter of um, if they, if they can do it to scale it up and then to uh, start commercializing it. Right. And I mean, it, this is kind of interesting because Pescanova has traditionally been a, a fishing company. That's where its its roots are. But um, obviously, like like so many large companies, I mean, they, they're they have a, a pretty strong foothold in aquaculture and have ambitions to grow. So they have uh, turbot farming as well uh, in Spain uh, and then also a pretty sizable uh, shrimp farming footprint in uh, Ecuador, Nicaragua and Guatemala as well. So. I wouldn't be surprised if we see them continue to expand more in in uh, in that segment of production. And in fact, they just launched a new uh, aquaculture R and D center there, uh, I believe in Vigo, or at least um, nearby their headquarters somewhere. In in Galicia, yeah, which I talk about a little bit in the uh, in the in the uh, report I'm putting out next week, and just just on that um, strategy of aquaculture. Um, I mean, what he did say to me, and he's sort of repeating what he said in earlier corporate videos, is that um, the Spanish haven't been always known um, hitherto for their uh, awareness of, sustain, uh, of sustainability, sustainability issues when it comes to the sea and seafood, or even carried them out. But they, I mean, Gonzalez is now saying sustainability is not a company strategy it is the company strategy and and a part of that is uh, is building up the uh, the aquaculture side of the of the business right right well thanks john it's been really interesting coverage uh your your interviews with gonzalez and as you said it's it's rare to uh, find time to interview him and get a look into uh into what's happening in particular on the spanish market which really operates it's a it's a relatively insular sector, um, and so I have noticed with Gonzalez that he's um, putting much more effort into communicating and uh, sort of showing that the company is aware of its different divisions in different countries, uh, which I think is just in general a really important 
an important uh, effort that we're seeing a few fisheries companies make um, to ensure that they're not sort of they don't have their international operations kind of squirreled away and hidden um, that they're actually highlighting them and ensuring that they have the same level of transparency uh, as their other operations. So it's not uncommon for some of these larger conglomerates to have, for example, fishing operations uh, off the coast of Africa and and stay pretty o- opaque about those because you know maybe they don't want to talk about um, what exactly goes on there. Uh, and we've certainly seen over the the years some um, some scandals and things cropping up about those types of uh, relationships. So, um, yeah, great stuff. Look forward to next week's story. Um, a reminder too: uh, we just finished our New York Seafood Investor Forum. That was on May twenty fifth. It was a fantastic event. It was really great to see people in person, um, and it was a fantastic crowd uh, and great panelists and speakers. So our coverage of that uh, is rolling out over the coming days. So we've had uh, a couple of pieces looking at salmon prices and demand. Uh, a great piece uh, today that John Evans wrote up from the, uh, from the presentation of Salmar Acker Ocean uh, and their offshore ambitions, which are, are really fascinating and um, uh, much closer to reality than one might think. Uh, and speaking of that, there will be uh, other uh, other coverage of of, uh, of uh, the panels and the presentations. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, one coming coming up will be on alternative seafood. That was one of my favorite panels uh, to moderate. So fascinating. Uh, I learned so much uh, about where uh, cell based seafood in particular is in the evolution uh, of, of commercialization. And I think the bottom line, I mean, uh, I won't give away too much of, of what you're going to be writing about, John, but I think the bottom line that I took away is that uh, it's way closer than we might think. Uh, and so um, we'll chat about that more next week on the podcast. So uh, John Evans, Mr. Fiorillo, thanks for joining. Thanks all you listeners. A reminder, we get great feedback from the industry out there on the podcast, and we really appreciate that. If you go to our podcast in the iTunes Store or Google Play and subscribe uh, or give us a review, uh, we would uh, appreciate that as well. And that helps other people find us uh, and helps us reach more of the industry out there. All right, folks, we'll speak to you next time.